Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. It's serious XM progress. I'm John Fugelsang. What a week. What a day. Man. So glad you're with us. This is Tell Me Everything. On Serious XM Progress 127. The little show at What the Hell O'Clock that brings good trouble to the right-wing bubble. So good to have you with us. For the next three hours, we're going to be coming at you with some really smart people. You know, we used to do a lot of panels on the show. We do them occasionally now. Tonight, we're going to overcompensate. We're going to begin the show with uh, our good friend Liz Winstead, comedian and uh, abortion rights activist, and, of course, the co-creator of The Daily Show. There's a new documentary out about Liz and the work she does with Abortion Access Front. It's premiering in theaters next week. It's called No One Asked You, and it's uh, just all about what these activists do on the road, uh, including a lot of great comedians, uh, everyone from Sarah Silverman to Greg Proops to Margaret Show. Every comedian who's ever done this show is in this movie. Um, and it really shows a lot of sides of the abortion struggles that we don't really see but hear about. It's really the first documentary I can think of that shows exactly what clinic escorts do, for example. And Liz is a riot. Glad to have her anytime. Hour number three, we're going to be really happy to welcome back our Red Talk panel, Julie Francella and Simon Moya-Smith. Uh, they're now moving their Indigenous panel on the show to being a weekly thing, which we're very honored by. Tomorrow night, very special show. A lot of great new interviews we want to bring you. Um, one is with Jenna Monroe, who was the first woman to ever join the FBI and become a member of the Behavioral Sciences Unit. She was uh, uh, the woman who coached Jodie Foster on her performance in The Silence of the Lambs. And she was the first woman to ever join this elite unit in the FBI designed to track down serial killers. Her memoir is out. It's insane. It's great fun and um, quite fascinating and both inspiring and deeply chilling. Really happy to have her. Uh, Joan Walsh will be joining us for the first time in a while. She's got a great new book. About capitalism and bullshit, and you're not going to want to miss it. It's really maybe the best political book I've read all year, and it's all about, well, how capitalism pushes the same lies. A certain kind of capitalism pushes the same lies year after year. 
to enrich its coffers, making people think that they're actually doing a public service. They they went through history and found all the same bullshit propaganda that gets repeated every 10 years for different causes. It's an incredible book. So a lot of great people coming. Chris Hauselt is our executive producer running this thing out of the South Carolina Bureau. The great Thea Harper controls our destiny from the Brooklyn Bureau. We're so glad you're with us tonight. Israel's going to open two humanitarian corridors to exit conflict zones in Gaza, and they promise a daily four-hour pause in military action to expedite any evacuations. Joe Biden said he wished Israel had paused fighting in Gaza sooner, which is as close as we've come to a criticism of Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu. And House Speaker Mike Johnson is going to enter the weekend with no clear funding bill. We are nine days away from another government shutdown Mike Johnson has walked into a neon-lighted trap saying, hey, this is the hole that killed Kevin McCarthy. If only someone had warned him. The CDC reports that more parents than ever are opting out of childhood vaccinations, shooting the rate of unvaccinated school children to 3% this year. (sighs) Thoughts and prayers, children. Let's get to it. So glad you guys are with us. Today is the birthday of the late Spiro Agnew. He would have been 105 today. It's also the birthday of Carl Sagan, Whitey Herzog, the late Tom Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Happy 72nd birthday to Lou Ferrigno. Happy 71st birthday to friend of the show, Senator Sherrod Brown. Happy birthday to friend of the show, the great guitarist and singer-songwriter Susan Tedeschi. Dorothy Dandridge would have been 101 years old today. And happy anniversary of birth to Ivan Turgenev, the great Russian author and playwright who said, if we wait until the moment when everything, everything is absolutely perfect, we will never begin. So enough of my yapping. Let's get into it. Republicans have seen the results of their six-week and 15-week abortion ban. They have seen voters turn out in large numbers to vote down their agenda. They have seen how deeply unpopular their anti-abortion agenda is. They have seen American voters explicitly say yes to abortion rights through ballot initiatives in seven states since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. California, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana, Vermont, and now Ohio. They are all turning out, and Republicans have seen this, and they are learning nothing. Nothing. Congressional Republicans are not giving up on their dream to pass a 15-week nationwide abortion ban, even though their party had their ass kicked so bad in the elections this week that, well, their ass was kicked so hard, Putin's hand is still in pain. They say that these poor results just show weak excitement among their base rather than any disapproval of their position on abortion. Weak excitement among their base? <laughs> weak excitement. Folks, they're they're I, I don't even they're running on contradictions right now. Democrats, meanwhile, are saying, hey, wow, this has gone from being the GOP's number one get out the vote issue for 40 years to suddenly the biggest drag on their ticket, and they're trying to get abortion-related initiatives on the ballot all over the place, namely in swing states, because what we saw in Ohio this week would surely boost any Democrats from Biden all the way down the ballot in 2024. It's not about the polling, folks. Don't let the polls discourage you, please. It's not about the polls. It's about the issues, and people care about the issues even when they don't necessarily like politicians. So you look at Abortion, it's still a winning issue for Democrats, including in red states. This is the time for a new 50-state strategy. I'm telling you, go find Howard Dean. He'll show you how to do it. 
you think I'm kidding? I'm going to say it again. I will bet you money that Donald Trump has to campaign in Florida and Texas next year. Write it down. I'm saying it right now. So now they're trying to get ballot initiatives in Arizona, Nevada, and Florida, which are all crucial swing states. Florida's pretty red, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of women who might vote Republican normally who will vote against their husbands this year in Florida. They're going to try to get abortion initiatives on the ballot in Nebraska and South Dakota. Why not? And again, it's going to be hard in some of these states. It's a very uphill climb to get ballot initiatives on uh, in different states. But we've seen the voters reject these abortion rights limitations all over the place. Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, privately has described the Democrats' path to victory as Dobbs and democracy. And it's pretty smart. If you can get these abortion measures on the ballot in Arizona, Nevada, Florida, that could be a firewall for Joe Biden. The Ohio vote is just the latest sign that the Republican Party has for decades been incredibly out of step with voters on this issue. And Missouri is going to have this on the ballot next year. Let people show up. And if Donald Trump's not on the ballot, Republicans will stay home. Trust me. So please Double down on your abortion bans, Republicans. Fight harder for this. Try to try to have a three-week waiting period before you ban it. Ran, run Donald Trump again. Do that. And you know what else, Republicans? Double down on letting Ron or Romney McDaniel be in charge of your elections. Can you do that, please? Don't expel George Santos. Keep him there. Keep him close to you. Be proud of him. Let Ron or Romney McDaniel keep on being in charge of getting all the money you need to win all your elections. You're doing great. Keep thinking the way to win over moderate independence is by persecuting trans children and screaming about critical race theory. That worked really well for you in 2022. Focus on that. Uh, send all your money to Donald Trump's PAC, where it goes to defense lawyers, instead of sending it to the RNC, where it would go to Republican candidates. You're doing great. And Joe Biden's going to need the help. Let's be honest. These poll numbers are fakakta, but they still need to be heated. I'm really glad it's lighting a fire under Democrats a year in advance. But we also need to talk about the third party Trump helper industrial complex, because the field of people who are being funded by dark money to run third party just to suck votes away from Joe Biden in the swing states, it keeps growing. The field of people who are running to hobble Joe Biden. And when I say Joe Biden, I mean not Trump, because that's what's on the ballot next year. You got Trump. And you got not Trump. And there's a lot of little not Trumps, but there's only one real not Trump you should vote for in swing states. I, I, I piss everybody off with this, but I'll say it again. You want to vote RFK? You want to vote for Dr. West, Jill Stein? Do it in a safe blue state or a state, safe red state. I'm sorry, but it's men without uteruses in six states, really three, who were too pure to vote for Hillary Clinton and voted Jill Stein. And that's the reason why humans who have uteruses now have fewer rights than their moms and grandmothers. So let's talk about the Trump helper industrial complex. Jeff Weaver, a former Bernie advisor, great guy. We've had him on his show, wrote a terrific book about how Bernie won by changing the narrative so much. He's now working for Dean Phillips, who is one of the most conservative Democrats in the House running against Biden. You know who else is working for Dean Phillips? Oh, I don't even want to say. It's too depressing. Woody Harrelson played him in a movie. How about that? Let's talk about Putin asset Jill Stein. She announced she's running today. Why? Because Jill Stein. So again, I've had Dr. Stein on the show before. She came on the show twice. If I have her on the air again, she's welcome. But I will be referring to her as Putin asset the entire evening. Just Google Jill Stein and Putin and see what kind of photos come up. You'll see why. They are trying to run as many third parties as possible. 
And then there's Joe Manchin, who may be the candidate for no labels. Because as of today, Joe Manchin is no longer planning on being in the Senate. And I want your thoughts on this. A Democratic legend is coming to an end in West Virginia. Joe Manchin's choice to not seek re-election may blow up any chances the party has of holding the Senate in 2024. And it could hurt the party's chances of holding the White House in 2024. You know, for years, the super wealthy cowered in fear at the thought, what if Democrats control the White House and the House and the Senate? Then we billionaires would have to pay a lot more in taxes. We might have to pay a little bit more. But then there was the legend of a chosen one, a Democrat strong enough to ignore the will of 81 million voters and the needs of poor people in his state, a Democrat who would protect super rich donors and protect corporations from paying taxes. They found their hope, and his name was Joe Manchin. And there was another named Cinema. But for now, Joe Manchin, who is pretty much most likely the only Democrat who could run competitively in deep state, deep red West Virginia, he's not running. Republicans will probably only need to flip one or two Senate seats to take control of the Senate next year, depending on the outcome of the presidential race. In a video he released this afternoon, Joe Manchin dropped the hammer. Here he is announcing... He will not run for re-election, which he was certain to lose anyway next year. I've never cared about where good ideas came from, and I never blame one side for creating a problem, nor believe that only one side could fix them. When America is at her best, we get things done by putting country before party, working across the aisle and finding common ground. Many times this approach has landed me in hot water. But the fight to unite has been well worth it. Today, West Virginia is attracting more investment, opportunity, and jobs than it has in decades. Here at home and across the country, we are building more roads, bridges, manufacturing plants, and energy infrastructure than almost any time in America's history. After months of deliberation and long conversation with my family, I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize uh, the middle and bring Americans together. There it is. To the West Virginians who have put their trust in me and fought side by side to make our state better, it has been my honor of my life to serve you. Thank you. A lot that's disingenuous to unpack there. But remember when he said, I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. You know, he butted heads with Democratic leadership all the time. And people kept saying, why doesn't he just flip to Republican? And I always said, why would Joe Manchin ever do that? If Joe Manchin flips to Republican, then he's just another right winger for Mitch McConnell to ignore. But if he stays a Democrat who opposes Biden and kills Biden's core legislation, Mitch McConnell will raise funds for him and he will be a celebrity. He never shied away from criticizing Biden's agenda. He threatened to tank so many nominations. At one point, he openly talked about becoming an independent just to give himself more power. Now, in credit to him, yes, he is the reason why they passed the Inflation Reduction Act. $740 billion, the largest climate investment in U.S. history. He gets credit for all the ways he helped but with Biden. He was a pro-choice Democrat in a deep red state. But what was most troubling about this is not his past, but what he said. He really, if you heard it, left open the possibility he's probably going to run for president on a centrist third-party ticket, which is to say he's going to try to get Donald Trump reelected. I'll be traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. 
I am Joe Manchin. I'm a millionaire who owns a coal company and lives on a yacht. You know, he comes from the third poorest state with zero billionaires that live in West Virginia. But most of his donations when he runs for office don't come from West Virginia. You know why? Because they're still poor there. He's not just the most powerful man in America. He's our worst president since Putin. This man has blocked economic reform, my friends, like it was Donald Trump's arteries. He raked in $1.4 million in campaign contributions early last year, more than double his totals from the first quarter, despite not being up for re-election for another three years. And he took another $1.1 million in individual contributions, very little of which came from people who live in West Virginia. His contributions come from executives of fossil fuel and real estate companies. That's who Joe Manchin works for, not the people of West Virginia. He works for the CEO of Plains All-American Pipeline, the CEO of Valero Energy. He works for the CEO of Rising Star Petroleum. He works for the CEO of ConocoPhillips, the National Stripper Well Association, Talos Energy and Niklos Drilling, Nap Oil Corporation, Mewborn Oil Company. If this guy drove a car for NASCAR, he'd have so many sponsor patches, you wouldn't be able to see his face. Joe Manchin is so bought and paid for, he should come with a gift receipt whenever he enters a room. And the Koch network was really pressuring this guy to oppose any filibuster reform and the For the People Act, important voting rights legislation. So Joe Manchin took their money and wrote an op-ed saying he would not eliminate the filibuster and he would not vote for the For the People Act. 81 million people voted for the Joe Biden agenda and Joe Manchin gets to say no. Because why would he be just another shitty Republican senator when he can stay in the Democratic Party and be the most powerful politician in the entire Congress? Again, he did vote for the spending bill, and they hammered him on that in his home state. And the odds don't look good for him winning. So if he wants to stay alive and stay in politics, why not jump to the presidential ticket sponsored by No Labels, which put this vague statement out praising him today, reacting to his retirement he said he wouldn't be a spoiler last summer. They asked if you got in the race. He said, if I get in the race, I'm going to win. He's not going to win. And he wasn't going to win the race for the Senate anymore. The, the former governor, Jim Justice, is already the favorite to win next year's Senate race. So that seat is going into the R column. This does mean, though, with Manchin not running, the money that would have been spent on him can go to John Tester. It can go to Sherrod Brown. Abandoning a West Virginia race that was already going to go red, it frees up resources. It's bad, but it might help save other Democrats. And again, this is the guy who blocked the Build Back Better bill, which would have helped people. Uh, you know, and we could talk about his personal corruption all day. You can Google it. But it, here's the deal with Banshin. The expanded child tax credit took 5 million children out of poverty. It proved that we can cut childhood poverty in half in this country with government policies if we want, if we have the will. And Joe Manchin is the reason it died. He's the reason 5 million children went back into poverty. So remember that whenever you hear him preaching about the so-called middle. Okay, RFK Jr., Cornell West, Dean Phillips, Jill Stein, Joe Manchin, they are all there to help Donald Trump take the White House back. Whether they know it or not, the people giving them money are giving them money so Donald Trump can take the White House back. Joe Manchin would have gotten eight figures in money from the National Democrats, and he was still lost anyway. We would have wasted so much money on him. It's... In many ways, not a tragedy. Take the money you would have given Joe Manchin and use it to get a Democrat to beat Ted Cruz next November. That's probably the best pickup opportunity you have on the whole map. And again, if Republicans get one more seat, they'll control the Senate, which means a block on all of Joe Biden's nominees for four years. So media, stop calling Joe Manchin a centrist, okay? He's not a centrist. Stop normalizing this bribery. It's all that it is. 40 years representing West Virginia, and they're still dead last on health care or near that near the last on education, the state economy. But Joe Manchin got richer and his fossil fuel donors who give him all the money got richer. 
West Virginia is one of the worst states for diabetes, heart disease, and obesity, has the nation's highest rate of drug overdose deaths for years, one of the highest obesity rates, one of the highest rates of high blood pressure. Meanwhile, Democrats, in spite of Joe Manchin, in the first year of Biden's administration, cut childhood poverty in half. They've added 10 million jobs by now, the most ambitious vaccine rollout in history, a trillion dollar investment in water roads, bridges, and broadband. Biden created more jobs in his first eight months than George Bush, George Bush Jr. and Donald Trump combined. Whereas West Virginia in crime and corrections, number 18, economy, 47, education, number 47, health care, 50th in the nation, infrastructure, 50th in the nation, overall ranking 46th in the nation. Or as Joe Manchin said today, I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. Vote some Democrats. Get Democrats elected. Joe Manchin now looks forward to groveling for the oligarch class in the private sector. We'll be right back with your calls and the great Liz Winstead, 866-997-4748. This is Progress. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. We are always happy to have the great Liz Winstead join us. I have been a huge fan of Liz for, well, a really long time. Uh, I was doing plays with Liz before The Daily Show was a thing. And uh, I used to drive a car to do a TV show every day in uh, CNBC in New Jersey. And every day, that was the year that uh, Air America was on. And I would listen to her with uh, her her young co-host, Rachel Maddow, every day. Uh, I have been a fan of Liz for a long time as a comedian. And I am a fan of Liz as an activist who takes the celebrity capital she has received in this life and uses it to help other people. She's a hero and a rock star for women's reproductive freedoms. She's the co-creator of The Daily Show. She was head writer and she founded and is CCO of Abortion Access Front. And y'all might already know that. Liz does the talk shows. She's a great guest and she's a lot of fun. She's really smart, brings the passion. But did you know there's a new documentary by Ruth Lightman called No One Asked You? And it's all about, well, 
Liz and her team at Abortion Access Front, many of whom I've met, I was like, oh, I, I drove around Wisconsin in a van with those ladies once. The film shows Liz and her team at AAF crisscrossing America to support abortion clinic staff to destroy stigma. There's pop culture icons. There's so many great comedians in this film. It was a road trip movie that was filmed over six years, and it's all about turning on people in small towns, rebuilding vandalized clinics, exposing the bad actor politicians and domestic terrorists and revoltingly fake Christians. It's a it's the rarest thing. It's a film that is every bit as entertaining as it is inspiring. It's a great pleasure to welcome the star of No One Asked You premiering next week at the Doc NYC Festival. Miss Liz Winstead. Welcome back. Hi. Hi, John. I just want to give Hi. everyone a warning that I'm outside. OK, because <laughs> my internet comes to the bed. So I'm outside in New York labbing with you um oh, and so if you if you hear traffic and stuff it's just you know we're just having a moment we're having real real time well congratulations on this film liz uh, it really i was telling you in the break for me it was like watching a documentary of everything i've watched you do in the past couple of decades and so many moments i was like i was there for that i was there for that it really is um I mean, it's on the one hand, it's a great political film about why we need to protect women's reproductive rights. But it's also a documentary about an artist who takes the capital she's earned and uses it to become a great activist. Congratulations on this achievement. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I'm so I'm so excited that I mean, and you've been there every step of the way from the very first benefit that we did in that crazy poetry club in the basement of this East Village. 40 seat theater with Sarah Silverman and I hosting it and you showing up and Amy Schumer yeah. and Phoebe Robinson and Dino Bidala, the night. great Leslie Gore saying yeah. you don't own me with her band, one of her last live performances, you know, it, you know, you've been there every step of the way. And I think, you know, what I hope that this documentary does is sort of shine a light on what happens when you leave these providers in these scary States out to dry, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, what happens when you can actually make a difference doing small acts of kindness to large acts of kindness. And I hope it also energizes people to want to join the fight in their own in their own way, um, you know, because truth is, you know, when Clarence Thomas and when that Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and when they said this gives us the opportunity and and demands of us the responsibility to relook the Oberfell case, to relook the, or, or, you know, to to revisit the um, the birth control case. They weren't kidding. You know, when we talk about bodily autonomy, it's abortion, it's gay marriage, it's birth control, it's all of our freedoms are on the chopping block, and mm-hmm. we get the country we fight for. And so I think being able to give people as many tools as possible and to meet them where they are to fight the power, I think is really important. I think you can't just demand people do something. I think you have to talk to people and you have to find out what they can do so that we can activate everybody and motivate everybody because we all have different capacities, skill sets, opportunities. And I think through the work we do, we try to make sure that those things are offered to people. You know, Liz, we've talked a lot this week about the incredible response 
at the ballot box we've seen in the wake of the gutting of Roe v. Wade and how people have shown up, including in deep, deep red states, to fight back against uh, the overturning of Roe and to fight for women's reproductive freedom in their states, California, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana, Vermont, and as of this week, Ohio. It's been very mm-hmm. inspiring, and clearly the Democrats are going to be able to use this to get advantage in the polling place because this is what Americans want. They don't want their rights taken away. Having said all that, with all of this encouragement and how it is really reinvigorating democracy as we know it, how bad is it, Liz? How worried are you about the snowballing successes the right wing has enjoyed? Well, I think what the thing that I think I'm worried about, the, I mean, there's a couple things that I'm worried about. One, it's that for so long, I mean, I cannot tell you and well, I can tell you because, you know, but let's telling your audience how long we've been demonized centering abortion for mm. 40 years. We've been demonized centering abortion, having people yeah. tell us it's a wedge issue, having people tell us we won't win on it, having people tell us you're going to alienate people. And we knew from being on the road, and I've known for years, that people who, if one in four women have had abortions through the course of their reproductive lifetime, that means that one in four women profoundly understand that that choice oftentimes kept them on their path of self-determination, right? Yeah. And we never harness that. And, and because Democrats have ran away from the issue for so long, they have no playbook on, on how to run on this issue. And yes. they don't seem to be asking those of us who have been in the trenches and have talked about abortion and know how to talk abortion with people, how they should do it. And so my plea to anybody listening to your show who is in in these politics, please talk to us because we can give you the language you need. We can give you the compassion you may not have because you haven't talked about it. But please talk to us. That scares me a lot. You know, I, yeah. I was listening to you talk about Joe Manchin at the end of this segment and like how, how this all plays out. And you're so right that Ted Cruz is basically the only possible flippable seat. But the I also very much worry about John Tester's seat. You know, I yeah. worry about vulnerable seats that Democrats already hold. And how are we going to help people hold those seats? The more ballot initiatives we can get on in 2024 and Arizona's putting one on the ballot in 2024 Kansas is putting in 2024 uh, are, are trying to you know get the signatures now Florida you know so these states where when abortion's on the ballot we win right yep. because it cross yep. it's cross politics it is deeply personal and people understand what it means and so making sure that these ballot initiatives get on the ballots is going to help us elect more Democrats. I mean, New York alone, John, New York is trying to get codification of abortion rights in 2024 on our ballot. We will do that. But what that can do in New York alone is possibly reclaim those six seats that we lost, that Biden won by 18 and Republicans took those congressional seats. We can win those seats back and take back the House by putting abortion on the ballot in New York. So that's the kind of thing that we're thinking about and talking about and strategizing around. Liz, I was saying at the top of the show, this might be the first film I've ever seen, documentary or narrative, that shows exactly what clinic escorts do and why Mm -hmm. they are so often necessary. At one point, someone says, anything you can do to protect a clinic 
is radical. What mm-hmm. do the average Americans who've never taken part in helping someone enter or leave a clinic need to know about this kind of volunteer work? I mean, I think I think that, you know, John, the, this is the problem with the abortion issue as a whole. We never talk about it and the yeah. aspects of it. Right. And so when it comes to clinic escorting, I would just love people to understand that when they have to when people have to go access care, 99% of the time, they are greeted by mobs of white people, mostly white men, screaming at them that about their salvation, that they are yeah. whores, that they are terrible. And a lot of times, the lion's share of these people are people of color, right? Black people, brown people. And so think about what it means to be a black or a brown person on one of the worst days of your life going into a clinic and being screamed at by white supremacists that you are going to hell, that you are garbage in a world that every step of the way that messaging is hitting you on some level, be it at Mm -hmm. work, be it trying to raise your kids, hoping your kids don't die from police violence, hoping that the water in your community isn't going to be tainted like Flint. And then, you know what I mean? And so being able to escort a patient in and having a voice and a warm person say simply to them, I'm going to lead you in. And inside there, we trust you that you've made a decision for yourself. And we want you to walk out being able to live your best life. And so, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Please. No, please go ahead. Please finish. Oh, I was going to say. And and for a lot of folks, you know, who are having abortions, they're people of faith, you know. And so I just want people also to realize that this sort of trope that the right likes to set out there, that it's like it's the ladies with the rosaries out there praying for people. You want to know what? I would argue that using Christianity as a cudgel and being praying over someone and telling them that their eternal salvation is threatened is more damaging than a bunch of white guys screaming at you yeah. because you are threatening someone's and shaking their faith. And I believe in a God that says, I've created opportunities for you to be able to live to your fullest on this earth. And I hope that you seize them and that when mistakes are made in your life, I've given you tools to be able to course correct. Yes. And abortion is a course correction for a lot of people. And they may feel sad about it. But I'll tell you, there was a massive study done five years following people for the five years after they've had their abortions or been turned away from their abortions. And the people who were turned away have had suffered great mental harm. And the people who had access to their care through the course of that five years said, even if they felt sad, they understood that the decision they made was right for them. And 95% of those people also said that their number one feeling was relief, not regret, yeah. but relief. 
it's interesting, you know, you you get to know some of these anti-abortion extremist protesters, and it's very mm-hmm. amusing that there was guys you knew at January 6th, because I don't need to tell anyone how revoltingly anti-Jesus their version of Christianity is. But mm-hmm. for me, the most moving moment of the film, there's a discussion scene with some women sharing their experiences, which is something you never see on TV. And there's this one right. woman in her 60s or 70s saying that she had her abortion in the 1970s. And then she reveals that she never told a soul in her life she had done it until the day she escorted a patient. And the patient she Mm -hmm. escorted, she turned and told her story to, and she realized that was the first time she'd ever shared it. It's so moving. It's so loving. And it really shows how far we have to go, but how far we've come. Mm -hmm. And just really understanding the power of storytelling is what humanizes all of our experiences. We watched the power of storytelling when people were coming out and what it meant to be able to love who you love, right? And it's the same with abortion storytelling. If you hold something in, then the other side gets to create the false narrative around it. And so I just think it is so important to make sure that you are the person who is owns your own narrative and owns yes. what that is like because when you're escorting somebody or when you have the power to tell your story, there is a world of people out there who have no one and they hear that story and now they have someone and that really matters. I never forget talking to a doctor in Schenectady who provides abortion care and he said to me, Liz, I think one of the things that people don't realize is for a lot of folks who find out they're pregnant, the process they go through to get to me, I am oftentimes the first person that's been kind to them on their journey. Yeah, And that's uh, something that people need to understand that as you're navigating that process, a lot of times people are isolated and alone, maybe yeah. in a partnership that's not healthy or great. Exactly. So they have to hold it in. And finally, they can exhale when they get to that clinic because it's full of people who want nothing more than for these people to have a holistic experience that helps them, again, do a reset on their lives. Yeah. Liz, before I let you go, I I would like to ask you, what does the average American need to know about the Fifth Circuit Court and how it affects our lives? The Fifth Circuit Court is the most conservative court in the nation. It is where all extremists will drop their cases into that court so that they can get a ruling for themselves. And right now we are talking about medication abortion, which is the most 53% of all abortions that happen in the United States right now happen through pills and medication. And the Fifth Circuit has just ruled that they want to roll back the approval ratings of the abortion pill back to 2000, which means it's only up to seven weeks. And it is has to be in clinic. The Supreme, We're waiting for the Supreme Court to take the case. If the Supreme Court takes the case and says that that ruling stays, that means that we have a national seven-week abortion ban. And that means in all 50 states. And so that will mean basically an ostensible ban on abortion. And so we're waiting right now to find out if the Supreme Court's going to take the case. I think they will because all sides were upset. The anti-abortion people who brought the case want to get the pill off the market entirely. Our side is angry that they rolled it back to these draconian regulations. It's been on the market for 23 years. 55.2 million people have taken this pill 
25 death or injuries related to the pill in 5.2 million, I'll take those odds. So we're waiting for that battle. And when they take it, I'd love to come back on and talk to you about what we can all do to mobilize around that. Please do. Once again, the documentary is called No One Asked You. And let me just give shout outs to the comedians because I saw all my friends in this movie. Joyelle Johnson, Sarah Silverman, Margaret Cho, Greg Proops all appear in the film. But Liz, for those who can't make it to the premiere next week in New York City, when will people be able to see No One Asked You streaming or in a town near them? So you can stream it right now at if you go to docnyc.com um, and and then type in no one asked you. There's a streaming. Um, you can pay to stream it between now Brilliant. and the end of the festival, which is, I think, the 18th. And then hopefully, you know, this is the premiere and the kickoff. And so hopefully um, it will have success and then we'll be able to bring it to more cities and then hopefully get distribution. So if you want to stream it, that opportunity is available to you brilliant. Liz, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the film. I know how many years of work went into it. I look forward to having you back as soon as we can. Love you so much. Thank you. Well, we'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I am thrilled to welcome back to the show... Two of our friends who bring us what has become, really quickly, one of everybody's favorite segments. Still looking for the perfect name. We're experimenting with Red Talk. Simon Moya-Smith is an Oglala Lakota and Chicano journalist. He's a contributing writer at NBC News, where you can read his thoughts on issues at the intersection of his heritage and modern politics. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass. And he recently profiled actress Paulina Alexis of the Peabody Award-winning FX series Reservation Dogs for the Cut. Simon, it's always a great pleasure to welcome you back to SiriusXM. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being had. Julie Francella is an activist, an artist, a writer, and a veteran mental health professional with over 28 years experience in the clinical field working with complex trauma. Julie worked as the executive director of a domestic violence center and as a clinical caseworker for 13 years at a residential treatment center for indigenous youth and families. She is an enrolled member of the Ojibwe of Bachawana First Nation Reserve, and she currently works with the First Nations University of Canada. Julie, welcome back. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And uh, I want to say again, um, happy Native American Heritage Month. We talked about the month a bit uh, last time you guys were here, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper and ask you uh, a a couple of just basic questions that I think uh, an ignorant like white person like myself should ask. Uh, Number one, um, what are some of the myths about indigenous peoples that we still need to get over? And, And two, how how does one be a good ally 
uh, beyond Native American Heritage Month? Simon, you can take that one. Yeah, man, I wrote about this a while back. Uh, you guys can look it up. It's on Vice. It's 100 Ways to Appreciate, Not Appropriate from Indigenous People. Nice. And now I've learned that it's become a uh, required reading in some ethnic studies departments and political science departments. And we just ask the basics, like winnow out all the bullshit, everything you think you know about Indigenous people, aside from what Julie and I have you know, imparted upon you, um, try to start all over. For example, we don't go to college for free. We get that stereotype all the time, like, oh, you're here and, you know, you, you get to go to college for free. And just because we're native doesn't mean we can walk into Harvard and just sit down and go, I'm a Native American. Let me right. in your school. That's not how that works. Uh, people say or well, we don't pay taxes. We do pay taxes. Not all of us are wealthy from casinos. That's another one. And there's a yeah. weird stereotype that that somehow is trying to coexist together is that we're either really 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 poor or we're really 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 rich okay we're, we're yeah. super wealthy from casinos we don't pay taxes and we get checks from the government that's all bullshit okay we're not a monolith just because one tribe may be wealthy from casinos doesn't mean mm -hmm. every nation and tribe is my tribe is not wealthy at all the oglala lakota we are not wealthy at all from any casino money whereas other nations and tribes will be and so they even have the money just to pay for tuition just because they're native doesn't mean the government's going to give them money and say here's money for the kids to go to school they'll just they'll have the money so we need to dispel with all of these these stereotypes of who we are and then just ask the basic questions. For example, there was no such thing as homelessness until the white man came. There was yeah. no such thing as starvation until the white man came. There was no jails until the white man came. And so now what we have are these uh, these for profit jails. We have people starving. We have homelessness and they want to call this civil. Well, I think at this point, and especially in November, study a little bit about us. Go to your Indian center. Just ask those basic questions. Why didn't Indians have jails? Why didn't indigenous people have homelessness? Yeah. homelessness? Why didn't we have starvation? So it's an opportunity to dispel with those bullshit stereotypes and then, you know, educate yourself. Brilliant. That piece in Vice, by the way, I have read. It's great. I just shared it on my Twitter if anybody wants to catch it right now. Julie, do you have anything to add? I think, like Simon was saying, um, one of the, the biggest things you can do um, to sort of dispel myths and, and just be an ally to Indigenous people, First Nations people, is to educate yourself. That's one of the best ways. You know, be curious. Go to, you know, uh, your local uh, Indian Friendship Center, we call them in Canada, or, you know, Indian Community Center, and see what's going on and, you know, talk to people there. Um, and another thing that I think is really important, and that's something that is being done here, is amplifying Native voices. Um, so share and elevate the perspective of Native Americans in conversations on social media and in uh, your community, and prioritize their narratives and opinions on issues that uh, affect our communities. And so, again, you know, thank you for doing that, um, giving us this um, platform to, to elevate our voices. Stop. Are there any, Except for are there Chris, any... not Chris. <laughs> not Chris, no. Are there any persistent no. stereotypes, Julie, that, that, that drive you nuts? Um, anything that, that yeah, especially as a woman, that you are uh, must be sick of hearing? Well, um, I mean, yeah, I think one of the, 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 the myths is that we're all, you know, uh, alike or we're all part of the same tribe, I guess, the same nation. Um, yeah. We're not a monolith. There's just so many different uh, nations and tribes. I think there's 530 recognized um tribes in the United States. And I think in uh, Canada, there's 630. 
so we're all different. We we look different. People uh, want to make the assumption that we all look the same, and we we don't. Um, we're still here. That's another uh, myth. I think that I, I find um, you know you you look up a Native American on the internet, and traditionally you'll see black and white photos of you know indigenous people in regalia you're not seeing you know doctors and lawyers and you right. know journalists you're seeing you know very um ancient sort of looking um stereotypical native people and so yeah we're still here we're all over the place so you know we've talked a lot yeah. about how in canada they have the truth and reconciliation commission where they're actually talking about what happened to these residential schools. We're seeing them, the graves begin to be uncovered and the government yes. is beginning to face a reckoning. And we've talked about how that doesn't seem to be happening here, except we now have, for the first time in our country's history, an indigenous person in a president's cabinet. And that, of course, is Interior Secretary Deb Holland. What has she been doing regarding this road to healing tour and, and intergenerational trauma? Well, I'll just sort of touch on that a little bit. Deb Holland is actually doing um, a tour called the Road to Healing Tour, and uh, it's under the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiatives, which she had started. And basically, just like the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee in Canada, they went around and recorded stories from survivors of the residential schools. So now, uh, over the last, I think, 12 months, Deb Holland and a group of uh, individuals have been going around and talking to survivors of boarding schools in the United States, recording their stories. And there's going to be a um, report coming out in, I think, uh, 2024. This is how it starts. This is how the truth comes out. I was reading some of the testimony. A lot of these elders have never told a single soul about their experiences in the boarding schools, and they yeah. recounted tales of sexual abuse and sexual trauma, and um, a, you know different types of abuse, and just how you know that has impacted their lives. I can talk Simon, a little bit about intergenerational trauma later, but I'd like Simon to kind of speak to that. Yeah, I'd well. love to bring Simon in on this because we we've talked about it a bit in the past, Simon, and, and I've said you know this Harrison Ford. TV series earlier this year in 1923 is the first time I've ever seen residential schools depicted at all in American popular culture. But what do you think of what Deb Holland is trying to do? It sounds like the very humble beginnings of a reckoning that has to happen. Well, it definitely has to happen. I just hope what they're doing also is providing um, some support for those that are reliving this trauma. Right. You can't just go and ask somebody to, to talk about the sexual abuse and then just walk away. And we yeah. saw that happen um, on my reservation in like early 2000s. Um, I think it was 2020 came to our reservation and it was a whole poverty porn, you know, uh, news yeah. story. And uh, there was suicides after they left. And uh, I got a phone call from my elder and he said, you know, Simon, what the fuck? You know, they came over here, they got their story and they left. You know, what, what do we do? And I said, see that that's exploitation. That's exploitation in journalism. And so I'm hoping in this case, and I haven't read anything, so maybe they're doing it. And I, 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 it's Deb Holland. She's indigenous. So I think she knows that she wouldn't, you know, you can't go in there, open wounds and then walk away. So I'm really hoping that they're, they're sharing these narratives, obviously for a report, obviously for um, history. So people understand that this took place, but we have to take care of our elders if they're going to open old wounds. Amen. I mean, earlier this year, I, I remember Dartmouth. 
Dartmouth announced that they had discovered previously unreported Native American remains in their collections. I mean, it's just it, there's so much exploitation and hurt that has been buried for so many years. And I, I it just seems this is what we talk about, Julie, when we talk about intergenerational trauma and, and healing. Right. And, you know, I've worked in the field of trauma for um, almost 29 years, um, mostly working with Indigenous families and Indigenous youth. And, you know, just so your listeners have a bit of an understanding, intergenerational trauma, it's multi-layered um, and it affects not only Native Americans, but, you know, any person that's, that's had trauma in their life, particularly those from marginalized groups um, who face systemic challenges. So the trauma experienced by one generation can cascade through to the descendants of another and influencing their psychological and their interpersonal dynamics. And the impacts aren't just um, psychological, but they're physiological too. And so yes. potentially altering a person's sense of safety and well-being in the world. I wanted to bring up one trauma sort of specialist that I've actually done some training with uh, in my career. And he, his name is Bessel van der Kolk, and he's a, a leading expert in the world of trauma. And he has this concept of the body keeps the score, which refers to the way that yes. traumatic experiences are encoded in the mind and the body often leading to long-lasting effects. So the symptoms um, include you know, hyperarousal, intrusive thoughts, you know, somatic symptoms like even gastrointestinal issues or chronic pain without a clear medical cause. And so these are ways that the body will keep the score of the trauma holding onto the stress and expressing it physically. And so events like you know, the residential schools, um, survivors of those events, they could have lasting effects, not just on those who were present. And this is the important part. And this is what I've worked with, um, with the young people that I've worked with in Canada and in the United States. We have U.S. Um, citizens work uh, in those schools as well, or in those um, places as well. But mm -hmm. um, it also impacts the children and the grandchildren through epigenetic changes. And that's something that is really important to remember that these elders and these people who have had these experiences, you know, that trauma has been passed down. And yeah. that happens and with, you know, a, um, any kind of trauma that's happened uh, to people. Yeah. Passed down. I mean, it can happen with generational, with, with sexual trauma. I mean, with physical trauma, we, Absolutely. you can pass that down and you can have people who are affected by the pain and violence that was inflicted on their parent or grandparent and they never know what it was. They are carrying yeah. the pain still that's been handed down. It's like muscle memory that you can pass down. And yet... That's exactly what it is. They weren't there for the trauma, and yet it still affects them. And we see this play out in cycles of poverty and cycles of abuse and addiction mm -hmm. in cultures all the time. And then Indian Health Services is shit. Tell me. <laughs> Indian Health Services for a lot of people, uh, there's that stereotype, oh, Indians, you guys get free health care. It's, it's shit. It's not great. This is it's something no one so, knows about, Simon. This is something nobody knows about. Please tell us. Sometime. Yeah. So uh, we have Indian health services, right? They're clinics. Okay. Most of them are clinics. And especially, let's say, where I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, just like Julie was saying, okay, let's say you have a GI issue. Well, you're screwed. There are no specialists. You can probably see a dentist. Okay. You can probably see a primary care physician. But if you have GI issues, if you have something like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, they can't do anything for you. They, and then they can't even refer you out because you got to have 
Blue Cross Blue Shield or something. If the clinic can't do it, you have to go to the emergency room and then you incur those costs. So for anybody out there who that's another stereotype who want to say, well, these Indians, they get free health care. It's a clinic and it's shit and it's often underfunded. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised. It just seems like, again, it's a, it comes down to awareness and it comes down to a lack of exposure and it comes down to a lack of a platform for First mm-hmm. Nations people to even reach out to their potential allies and let them know what they have to deal with. Yeah, it, it really comes down to, I mean, just again, educating. Everybody needs to like start all over again, as I said, so they understand that, you know, we don't go to college for free. Our health care sucks. We don't get to see specialists. You know, we're not all rich from casinos, that whole thing. Yeah, man. I mean, Julie, this makes me think about what's going on in Canada right now. And, you know, when you talk about what Deb Holland is doing, interviewing survivors of boarding schools and, and you know, it, it's beautiful. It's moving. It's the beginning, but it's still just scratching a surface. You've talked before yeah. about what's going on in, in Canada. And just now, today in the Toronto Star, the Supreme Court of Canada is hearing a case on the broken treaty promises with up to a $126 billion award on the line. This yeah. is involving First Nations just in Northern Ontario. And we talk all the time about reparations. I always say any serious conversation about reparations has to deal with both the descendants of slaves and the descendants of the First Nations people. Because at mm-hmm. some point, all of these broken treaties, someone's going to put the right funding with the right lawyer and have a hell of a class action suit. What is going on in Canada mm-hmm. right now? And and why... Uh, <laughs> Why is America really bending over backwards to not cover it? (laughs) Exactly. Well, this actually went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And so at the center of the trial or the center of the case is what the First Nations argue is a broken treaty promise that has resulted in a generations-long sentence to poverty while non-Indigenous communities thrived from the territory's resource wealth. And I know Mm. about this because this is my nation. This is the case that my nation is involved with. So my ancestral grandmother, Julia Chichiwanukwe Sayer, her son, my great uncle, was one of the signatories of the Huron-Robinson Treaty, which is named in this particular case. So the case is about righting wrongs. And finally, you know, the government adhering to the treaties that were uh, signed by the First Nations people and the government of Canada. So I, I remember I was listening after we were on last week and you had a caller and I think I wrote it down, David in Santa Fe. And mm-hmm. David in Santa Fe, who now lives in Lake Tahoe and he's Lakota, yes, he, he said, and he hit it nail, he hit the nail right on the head. We don't want reparations. We want the government to honor the treaties. And that is what's going on here in this case. You're right. We're not asking for something that wasn't promised to us. This is what the treaty meant. The the, the government of Canada said and signed the treaty saying that they would increase the annuity payment for all members of this nation, all of the 21 nations involved in this case, as permitted. So they, they accumulated so much wealth through these resources. And you know what our our annual payment is each each indigenous person in this case that started in 1850 $4 that's it so that's what we get a year $4 a year it hasn't changed since the dates that the treaty was signed actually i i i i'm mistaken it changed once it originally was $1.67 in 1850 
and in 1875 it went up to four dollars they have not raised that so they're making money hand over fist and they admitted to the crown admitted to not basically not holding up their end of the bargain so your right. caller thank you david in santa fe for calling in and saying that we don't want anything that we weren't promised so all we want yeah. is the government to keep the the promises that that were signed during the treaty and that's what Simon, this, I, this case I, I love everything Julie just said, and I love the notion that, you know, it's not reparations. It's just what's already owed. I can imagine that a lot of American bureaucrats would be horrified by hearing this sort of thing be discussed. But I don't I don't think they can put this genie back in the bottle. I, I, I think that these calls will only become louder. What are to you the obstacles that are right now keeping this kind of movement, the progress we're seeing in Canada from beginning to take root here? Oh, it's just the United States, man. They don't. Yeah. They need to be the first at everything. They're not going to follow Canada. They're not going to wait for Canada to take the lead and say, "Okay, well, we'll do that too." Uh, similarly, for our people, um, they stole the Black Hills, right? The Black Hills, yeah. Baja Sapa, no doubt. And b back in the 1980s, and of course, when they stole the land, that also meant they stole the resources, so gold. So they had a shit ton of money from stealing the Black Hills from us. Well, back in 1980, the United States Supreme Court said, okay, you have to compensate these Indians with interest um, for the land that you stole. And so it has accrued interest even to today where it's a little bit more than $1.5 billion. Okay. But our elders are like, no, it was never for sale. So th yeah. it's equivalent to somebody stealing your car. Let's say you have a classic car, okay, and your grandpa worked on it and he takes it to shows and he can somehow make money on it. Let's say he has a YouTube channel, all right, and he monetizes a channel. So he has the car that he stole. And then you take him to court and the judge basically says, okay, well, just pay him. Like, don't, we don't want the money. We want the fucking car back. It's right, right there. Give it back to us. And right. that's what's happening with the Black Hills. They basically said, here's the money. And we have to remind them, we're not taking the money because it was never yours to take. And that's it was right. never for sale. So I really, I mean, I, I might be stereotypical indigenous. I really don't believe in, and I don't have faith in the United States government to turn around. And when we say land back, you know, we do mean all of it. It was like, or, or as much as they're willing to give. But at this point, to, to trust that the United States government is going to turn around and start honoring treaties. I mean, come on, we're natives. So, we're, you know, that yeah. we're going to call bullshit. What, what is realistic progress look like? What would it look like? I mean, when you do honor the treaties, I mean, it really does come down to things that surround like Standing Rock. You know, when we, when they wanted to drill baby drill and they were digging for oil and they were desecrating graves, even though they had that piece of paper, the, the Fort Laramie Treaty that said, this is where we will be and you guys stay on your side of the fence. And then all of a sudden, boom, here they come with their oil, you know, with their, their extractive industries and ignoring us completely. So, I mean, progress seems so simple to us just to honor the treaties, stop being an asshole and let's live side by side. But the United States government can't do that, really, especially when it comes to things like oil and gas and minerals. So true. Got it. So, I mean, Julie, let me ask you the same question. I'm, what would real progress look like? Well, I mean, again, it's it's exactly what Simon's saying. Um, you know, honoring the treaties, um, giving back the land that was stolen. And people, I think, need to understand the Black Hills to the Lakota, that, that's sacred you know, mm -hmm. that's not just, you know, a piece of land. You know, that's one thing I think um, 
if people are interested, there's a film out there right now. I have not watched it yet, but it is called uh, the Lakota. I think it's Lakota Nation versus the United yes. States, mm-hmm. and it, it. I think it's um, Simon. Have you seen that yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah. what what Julie's saying is uh, that's where our creation story comes from. The Black yes. Hills, Bahasapa. We uh, in our creation story, we literally came out of those hills. We came out of the soil. Yeah. And to kind of go back to, um, I, I was very intrigued by this caller that had called in who who is Lakota uh, David, and he was saying, you know, we may not, he believes that we're past, and I say this because he, he did um, say that he was an elder, and I respect that. And he was saying that he doesn't believe that, you know, at this point, the government would give the land back. However, yeah. you know, he was talking about you know, um, what about, um, and I really liked his comment about employment being a part right. of reparations, you know. Right. And Simon, you could probably speak to, he was talking about, you know, unemployment rates. And that's very true for a lot of reservations and reserves in Canada as well. There's nowhere, right. you know, to work. And so you have to go into the cities. So, you know, I think yeah. that's, you know, little by little, exactly. there's different ways to, to do that. But Yeah, food deserts. Yeah, yeah we don't have yeah. a grocery store on our res. It's, there's a gas station. But yeah, you're not going to find a, you have to go to Rapid City or somewhere in Nebraska and that's where you can get your groceries. Just mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah. And you know, I, I want to ask you guys one more thing. I mean, among the many aspects of First Nations culture that would horrify a lot of conservative white people is the fact that, and Julie, you've discussed this, the deep respect for the roles that women play in leadership and political life in, in First Nation societies. I mean... It, it almost seems un-American to talk about a strong matriarchy and what that means. And I think the fact that we don't talk about it is another sign of how fragile male-dominant culture really is. Yeah, it, matriarchy, you know, in this context, you know, it's 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 not simply about women leading. I think for for Indigenous people, it's this profound respect for the balance and roles of all genders with women holding significant positions of influence and authority. And this reflects a deep-seated value system where life-giving forces, you know, so women, uh, community welfare, and the wisdom of female elders are integral to the social fabric. It's not just about women being leaders, but it's this deep, deep respect. For Ojibwe people, the clan system is um it's the, it's known as the the dotum and it's traditionally passed down through the mother so each mm-hmm. clan is represented by an animal and has certain roles and responsibilities and this is uh, matrilineal and it's central to the anishinaabe or ojibwe or chippewa on this side of the border uh, way of life and my clan is uh, the eagle clan and you know it's it's just it's so there's so many um ways that that women are you know sort of respected and, and sacred and elevated and i think that it would get you're right i think it would be horrific to a lot of people who believe in this patriarchy and i wanted simon especially to speak to um you know some of this and and especially you know how native men and native boys are are to serve women you know dinner and things like that it's very yes. very special yeah. please Simon. yeah 
it's that's uh and it's very logical you know and i think that's what people need to understand about indigenous people everything we do has to do with the the land and has to do with balance and logic so for example the reason the boys serve the food not the girls not the moms and not the grandmas is because it needs to be instilled in a in a young boy very early on that the people eat or starve because of you yeah so there's no reason for a girl to serve you when you're the one that has to go out and hunt and provide the food. So, and then also um, stereotypes with our chiefs, you know, um, they think that all these men sit around and choose the chief. No, women choose our chief. And the reason that women choose our chief is because a woman is the best judge of a man's character. Okay, men will puff our chests with other men, right? We're going to be tough, but a woman knows your weaknesses. So for example, if somebody said, we want Simon to be chief, he's our candidate. And we're like, fuck no, he's scared of bears. We can't have a chief scared of bears. And so they'll go back and they'll choose another candidate. And so, because those are the things that, that is, that keeps the balance with us in our communities. Um, And then here's another thing. So for many people who go to a powwow, if you've never been to a powwow, you'll notice that men sit at the drum and women stand. Well, it's a balance thing. Women can provide life. Men cannot. So we have to sit and go closer to the drum to strike that balance. And here in, I'm in Denver right now, there's the second largest powwow, the Denver March powwow. And there was this one white woman, you know, she was kind of pissed. She was probably unfamiliar with seeing this, like, why are the women standing and the men sitting? And an elder native woman had to pull her aside and tell her this balance. And she was so embarrassed. You know, she Mm. brought this, you know, Western European idea um, of subjugation of the sexes to right. this powwow. And she had to explain that because men cannot provide life, we have to sit closer to the drum. I could listen to you guys all day. I swear to God, I learn so much every time. And, and you both explain a culture that every American should be familiar with and has been kept from knowing. And you both explain it with such grace and eloquence and passion. Simon, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work? Yeah, um, as usual, go to Instagram. Simon said, take a pic. We miss you on Twitter, by the way, but I totally respect your choice. <laughs> okay, I'll probably come back, back on. I'll, I'll probably okay. come back on. Okay. You know, I'm, we're, we're, we're just staying there to fight for the place. Like, we're staying here to fight for America. <laughs> Julie, what's the all best right. way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work and to see some of your art as well? Because you're an amazing painter. Thank How you. do we keep up with all of your doings? Um, on Twitter at Julie Franchella and also Instagram and there's my artwork on Instagram. I also have my website, juliefranchella.com and you can go there and, and find out. Simon, you should come back to Twitter because we have fry bread there. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, you can always pull me in with fry bread. Yeah. And if everybody Guys. doesn't know what that is, go out, Google it. It's delicious. Oh, right on. I can't wait. Guys, thank you so much. We'll see you have it back here again next week. What a pleasure. We'll be right back with your calls in our final minutes of SiriusXM. This is Progress. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. We're at 866-997-4748. Let's uh, try to get as many calls as we can in our final moments. Anne in Chicago, thank you for waiting on hold. You're on Progress. It's Diane in Chicago. Oh, hi, Diane. So sorry. Welcome. It's great to have you. Okay, I want to do this real quick so you can do other callers. Okay. I was in Rapid City, South Dakota in 1980. I attended a march and festival, Sunshine Valley Indian Reservation, to save the Pahasapa. Now, what they did not talk about, uranium mining. The Pahasapa, the Black Hills, are rich in uranium. Yeah. So no nukes, no nukes, no nukes. And that meant on both domestic nuclear power and nuclear warfare. All right. So we were there to try and save the mountain ranges. That includes Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown and James Taylor. Yep. All right. So um, uranium mining is really important because of what it's doing, the destruction. Institute leach mining, uh, mountaintop mining, uh, strip mining. All right, it's destroying the Black Hills. A lot of it's yep. already gone. Yep. All right, so th- they did not talk about uranium mining and the, the after effects because when you mine uranium, you get yellow cake. And the yellow cake is just dumped all over the land. That's right. That's right. All right, so. That, that's one thing they really didn't talk about it, and I've been no nuke since 1978. God um, bless you. Domestic. All right, so I needed to stress this, that the one thing they really did miss, because I really was ear to the radio on this, yeah. all right, and they missed uranium mining. That's well, a huge I'll, I'll industry. Ask about I'll ask them about it next week, because it follows the same pattern. They steal the land to rape the land and spoil the land for profit. Yeah, and... Um, the toxic waste that's left behind, the yellow cake that's left behind. When you mine uranium, what you get is yellow cake out of it. And it's yep. causing birth defects, um, that's right. cancers, all, all kinds of things. And they didn't even talk about it. So please, please mention bring it up next time. to your guests. I sure will. Thank you, Diane. I thank you so much for the call, and thank you for waiting on hold. Let me go to John in St. Louis. John, thank you for waiting as well. You're on progress. I was so hoping to be able to talk to your podcast because oh, well, I was okay. so fit to grow grow up in northern Minnesota. Yeah. With the on the Red Lake Indian Reservation. Okay. Where I got to understand like so much of those people's hearts. And, You're lucky. And I just yes, absolutely and fortunate. So I was so impressed with your last guest and loved hearing what this Well, they're going to be here every Thursday night. Thank so you. I, I, next week, if you call in, we'll, we'll make sure to get you on. Thank you for having them on. 
thank you. And I'm sorry our connection is so poor, but if you call in next week, I told them next week we'll we'll take some calls because a lot of folks want to talk to them. And David in Santa Fe, you're on Sirius XM. They actually mentioned you in the segment. How are you tonight? Yeah, I listened to that, John, and I want to express my uh, my gratitude to Julie and to Simon and to you, John, for facilitating this. Oh, uh, no, no, quickly, no. Uh, no. Simon was talking about uh, the health care thing, and that's right. It's shitty almost everywhere, but there are yeah. exceptions. Yeah, and it's limited. Now, you know, in uh, Rosebud Reservation, where I'm from in South Dakota, I got a hernia operation 13 years ago, and he was one. he's one of the best surgeons around, and there's no problem at all. But Santa Fe, yeah, it's a little sketchy. And also, California, Ronald Reagan closed all of the Indian Health Service That's right. hospitals in California. And yep. you know about that. I uh, do. Quickly, I uh, do. When he was talking about the drum and Julie and about the power of the woman. Yes, sir. When we, I don't do powwows. I do Sundance. Okay, so I, I got about 20 seconds for you. Go ahead. Let it lay it on me. Okay, I'm saying the power of the woman, woman is essential. We yes. have nothing without that. Beautiful. Talk to you, Austin. David, you are our last caller of the night, and I thank you so much. Next week, if you call in, I'll put you on the air with Simon and Julie, because they're your fans. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks to Liz Winstead as well. We had a lot of guests, so we didn't get to a lot of calls tonight. I'm really sorry if you waited on hold. I promise we'll get to you next time. Tomorrow night on the show, Joan Walsh is with us to talk about her amazing new book, Corporate Bullshit. Uh, Janet Monroe to talk about working at the FBI, profiling serial killers. we got a great show tomorrow night. We'll see you then, and I'll see you on Stephanie Miller in the AM. Peace. Peace.